You're listening to The Alan Carter Show on Global News Radio 640 Toronto. I want to talk about what happened at the Raptors Parade. On June 17th, an estimated 2 million people filled the city's downtown core. 100,000 people cramming into Nathan Phillips Square. A mother was present at that parade, standing near University Avenue in York. And she called out for help as her baby suddenly became unresponsive around 1.30 p.m. on that day. The baby was subsequently rushed to hospital in a Toronto Police SUV that happened to be in the area nearby. But did poor planning on the part of organizers contribute to the death of that infant? Global News broke this story on Thursday, but there is more going on here by, behind, beyond pardon me, a personal tragedy in a public event. I'm going to take you through some of what has been said about this incident, allow you to form your own opinion. Not here to tell you what to think, just to allow some perspective and some pause before the recriminations and the accusations begin. Let's begin with the mayor, who reacted this way, at least admitting in part that the strain on first responders had an impact on public safety. But listen as the mayor still manages to stress success. The parade was uh, supposed to be a joyous occasion, but uh, the success of it, um, you know, put a huge strain on uh, and, and caused significant risk. Uh, and, and I think we're going to have to find ways to do it better going forward. And I hope that uh, that, that review and its conclusions will, will bring the tiniest bit of comfort to this family, but that it'll be something I think that will be on my mind and everybody else's mind as we conduct the review. The most damning accusations are coming from the paramedics union, and here's Mike Merriman, the paramedic and EMS unit chair for QP Local 416. Mr. Merriman does not mince words. From a planning standpoint, first of all, the event was a absolute disaster. Uh, Resource-wise, uh, there was probably definitely not enough resources. We actually put more resources into the... Uh, um, Carabana Parade. That is Mike Merriman, who is EMS unit chair for QP Local 416 and the Toronto Police Association, that is the Union for Toronto Police, also pointing the finger at bad planning, saying its members were fearful. But here is the chief countering that. We utilized the resources to the best of our ability. Um, some uh, officers had a different experience. The feedback I got from many officers where they had a, a great time. Yes, it was taxing, um, but how the, the men and women from the Toronto Police Service acted is, is how I expect them to be, to be professional, to be courteous, to deal with the circumstances to the best of their ability, and they did a fantastic job. Well, he finishes up that answer by admitting there were hydration issues, and the police will be looking at best practices on the quote go forward i've talked about this before but why can't our chief of police just communicate like a regular person like when mark saunders is at home and he mixes up whether it's recycling or garbage night does he get angry and admonish himself to you know i i gotta have, i gotta have a better best practices on the go forward like you know when when it's time to change your tires over best practices on the go forward or you're thinking to yourself hmm i think i'm paying too much for my cell phone what should i do i should have best practices on the go forward you get my point let's get back to the issue at hand was it a lack of resources that contributed to this tragedy here is an eyewitness to the events of that day 
She asks to only be identified by her first name. Here is Laura talking about what she saw and heard. So within like a few seconds, um, they stopped what they were doing. One of them yelled out, one of the officers in the marching band yelled out, mobilize, mobilize. She's talking there about the response from police. Now, here's what Laura says about response time. We'll talk more about the paramedics, and that is a big part of this story in just a moment. But first, here again is Laura. People in uniform, the minute someone behind us called for help, they're like, help, call the police in front of you. Um, They ran right in. They stopped within a second, and they just jumped right in to help out. Jamie Marocker is a Global News reporter, and she interviewed that witness and joins me now. Hi, Jamie. How's it going, Alan? What has been the witness reaction that you've taught, that you've found from the incident? Well, I've spoken to three witnesses now, and all of them are absolutely traumatized. Um, they had been, actually all of them told me they had been scouring social media to find out if, in fact, the baby was okay. Um, we now know that, of course, tragically, uh, that child died two days after the parade in hospital. Um, so there's a lot of devastation, a lot of upset. The initial reaction from witnesses when they got in touch with me was they were impressed how quickly police left the parade route and ran over to this woman who was apparently screaming. The mother was apparently screaming for help. However, the big complaint that I'm hearing from the paramedics union is um, the original people that come over and help were two off-duty Um, or honor guard paramedics, which means they weren't working the parade at the time. They had no equipment with them, and the paramedics union says at no point was an ambulance able to make its way over or was a paramedic with equipment able to make their way to the scene. So that's, I think, the, the real issue that they're trying to point to here. Let's talk about the reaction from the unions. And, of course, we have more than one union speaking here, and they're speaking about different things. But this is obviously a tragedy, and we are looking into, the city's looking into the planning. Mm -hmm. But is there any suggestion that more paramedics would have made any difference here? Well, to give you an idea of resources, Mike Merriman with the Paramedics Union told me that we have more resources dumped into the Caribbean Carnival or what was Caravana than we did this parade with what the city estimated had more than 2 million people attend. They said that there was uh, basically seven crews that were working that day. They had some bike uh, EMS kind of crews out and about, but no first aid tents were set up. Um, And they just said, you know what, it it, it seemed uh, like the planning that went into it wasn't the appropriate type of planning. Then we heard a similar thing from police. They said overall, not talking specifically about um, this infant death, they said overall their members were stressed out, they were frustrated, there were points where they felt unsafe, they had a number of complaints uh, about that. And for some of these first responders, not only was this instance traumatizing, but the entire parade was traumatizing. I I also heard from the paramedics union that actually Toronto paramedics are offering up stress leave or counseling for paramedics who endured the parade and felt this way. Jamie Marocker, thank you so much, Jamie. Have a good one. Let's talk gender and plants. Is there sexism involved when we talk about plants in cities? 
All right, you're saying, can we serious up here because, you know, this radio show is supposed to be serious. Well, it's true. There is a difference between male and female plants and trees, and it has an impact on asthma and asthma sufferers. Brian Hill, he's an investigative reporter with Global News, joins me on the line. Hi, Brian. Hey, Alan. So... Is there a gender issue with our plants because the cities are planting the wrong gender? <laughs> uh, so I guess it depends on who you talk to. But uh, essentially, yeah, what we're looking at is uh, cities uh, across Canada and North America, actually, uh, prefer to plant male plants or male trees in many places uh, because they're cleaner and easier to manage. And a lot of people don't even know that their trees have gender or can have gender, but certain types do. Uh, And those male trees produce pollen, uh, unlike their female counterparts. Uh, But they don't produce seeds or pods or fruit, which fall to the ground and create mess. Uh, And obviously city workers and residents and homeowners uh, park goers, they don't like that mess. So cities for a long time have opted uh, to plant male trees in certain areas, uh, but that, some say, has led to higher allergy uh, levels, higher pollen levels, and exasperating asthma. So what you're saying is that the city planters have a choice. Their choice is either fruit falling to the ground and all you know the insects and all of the stuff that comes with it. I mean, I used to have a house that had a crab apple tree on the front, and it was applesauce central all August, <laughs> every August. It was terrible. So our yeah. choice is that or we can't breathe. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it is in a sense. So crabapple is a good example. That's a species of trees that uh, is distinctly male or female. Uh, and they're planted extensively in cities because they look good. They provide shade. They're, not, they're nice trees. Uh, and cities, though, will opt for the male species uh, because it doesn't bear that fruit. And, and you'll see that with other trees as well. Uh, so a really common one in, in urban environments is the ginkgo, which is not native to North America. It comes from China, actually. Uh, city planners love it because it's clean, it's hardy, it withstands the pollution in, in the urban environment. Uh, but if you plant the female kind, it drops fruit, which is very smelly, it rots, uh, and it's quite pungent, and that leads to really, at least to complaints. And and so that, that's an example of one of those types of trees. What do we know about asthma rates and the correlation with pollen and the decision to go with, you know, obviously the male trees instead of the female trees? Mm-hmm. So this is a really interesting point. We talked to a doctor, uh, Christopher Carlson. He uh, works out of the Air Pollution Exposure Lab in Vancouver, and he studies uh, the compounded effect of uh, inhaling pollen and vehicle exhaust. And he says that there's an exponential growth or rate increase in your inability to breathe if you have asthma and you inhale those two things at the same time. His, his research is really groundbreaking. Um, and and what, what he and others are calling for is simply a more balanced approach. So, you know, cities can choose what types of trees they plant. They can plant trees that are both male and female. Those are usually better choices. Uh, but along city streets and parks, hospitals, playgrounds, et cetera, you often find bushes and trees that are distinctly male. Those produce pollen that gets into the air, it mixes with other pollutants, and it can exasperate 
uh, allergies, it can, and it can also exasperate asthma, which is one of the leading causes of hospitalizations, asthma attacks uh, in Canada, especially for young children. Is there a push on, on any side of this to say, okay, city planners, change it up, you, you, you should just go forward with more of a mix in terms of gender when we talk about these plants and trees? Yes, uh, there is. Uh, so you, you hear this uh, anecdotally, but you, you do hear it from some other experts as well. We talked to an expert, Ken Farr, from the uh, Canadian Forest Service, who said it would be great if cities and when they're, they're expanding green spaces, which is very, very popular now, obviously. We're seeing more of that. He's saying it would be a great start if they started to plant more female trees because they also serve as pollen traps. So if a nearby male tree releases pollen into the air, um, if there's a female nearby, it will capture that pollen and it will sort of act as a trap, uh, which obviously reduces the amount of pollen that's in the air. All right, Brian, Brian, this is a family program, please. All right. <laughs> I don't I don't I mean, this is getting a little bit blue here. It's a little bit, it's a little bit, yeah, I mean, it's funny, like I talk to all sorts of people, people don't even believe that it's a thing, some people think, is this even real? Uh, but yeah, I mean, these trees have sex organs, quote unquote, and and, uh, and, and, and it's, it's important in terms of how they impact the cities and the places where we live. Brian Hill. Uh, who previously I thought you were a total wonky guy when it comes to energy policy, but turns out you're an arborist as well. That's awesome, dude. <laughs> Anything that affects people, I think. Those are the great stories. <laughs> Those are the great stories. Brian Hill is an online, online writer and researcher and, uh, for, and investigative journalist for Global News, and you can read his piece on globalnews.ca. Brian, always great to have you on the program. Thanks very much. I want to talk about millennials again because it's one of my favorite subjects because we blame them for everything, don't we? And you know what they're ruining now? They're ruining happy hour. That's what they've ruined. They've ruined having a good, uh, just a cocktail at the end of the day because you may have heard this, that there is a growing trend amongst a certain age group of abstinence, of sobriety. Now, there isn't a lot of statistical evidence yet that young adults have actually altered their drinking habits on a grand scale. But changes in habit often lag behind changes in attitude. National survey data on drinking habits reflect only small declines in heavy alcohol use. For 2015 through 2017, the most recent year for which data is available, the rate of millennials who reported that they had consumed any amount of alcohol in the preceding month remained pretty steady at about 60%. I'm reading to you from an article in The Atlantic that has really set off a lot of reporting about this. And millennials have sparked a sober revolution, according to some articles. Everywhere you look, you see it. You know, the hashtag, sober curious, sober is sexy, sober life. It's not a fad buoyed by addiction and recovery stories. These are not stories about people who have hit rock bottom and are now pulling themselves back up. But millennial and Gen Z-driven trend is seen as part of a wellness movement, a desire to have social gatherings, less focused on alcohol and the next morning's less fuzzed by after effects. And brands are now making a real significant move into this area. Alcohol brands. I was like, well, all right, if I can't sell you a, I can't sell you a cocktail, I'll sell you a mocktail. You'll still pay $12 for it. 
But, you know, whatever you want. What is behind all of this? Laura Hensley is an online writer for globalnews.ca and joins me on the line. It is after the sun has passed the yard arm, so you could have a drink in your hand, Laura, and not feel guilty. Mm-hmm. Um, are you enjoying a cocktail on this Friday before a long weekend? You know, it's funny, Alan. I'm one of these millennials who is, quote-unquote, sober curious. I don't actually really drink that much alcohol at all anymore, so I really resonate and appreciate this movement. What, what has prompted you to do this? Well, I think you really, you know, hit the nail on the head when you said the wellness movement's really fueling sober curiosity. So more millennials are interested in taking care of their physical health through exercise, meditation, their mental health. And within that, you start to realize that alcohol kind of makes you feel crappy when you drink too much of it. So for me, at least, if I have one too many drinks, I feel so badly the next day that I'm mad at myself. And it sort of feels counterintuitive to taking care of myself and so many other aspects through, you know, exercise, eating well, sleeping. So I think more people are realizing, hey, we don't need alcohol. If it's going to make us feel bad, let's try to do something else instead. Okay, uh, I get all of that. That all makes sense. I feel the same way in the morning, but it's the effects of the alcohol the night before that keeps me coming back. (laughs) And I get that. And that's probably one of the hardest parts. And I think, you know, when you go out, like you mentioned, for happy hour, you go out after work, you have a cocktail. It's a huge social thing, you know. So it's it's about the alcohol and the way it makes you feel a little bit more relaxed, a little bit more loosey-goosey. But it's also so tied into what we do with other people. So I think a lot of people are concerned that if you take happy hour away, if you take alcohol away, you know, what are you going to do for socializing? And I think that's a legitimate concern. But when you don't have the alcohol as social lubricant, you start to realize that the people around you may be more interesting than you realize, or, or maybe they're less interesting. Yeah, are all jerks. This is. A, <laughs> exactly. I mean, there's a reason it's a social lubricant. I mean, I don't want social friction in my evening. No, but it makes you sort of see things differently, you know? Like if you don't have the alcohol clouding your judgment, you can really get a sense of who you're hanging out with, what they're saying, and it kind of does change your whole perception of what it means to interact, you know, in in those types of environments. What's the reaction been, I mean, I know amongst perhaps, you know, your, your friends and your generation, perhaps it'll be understood, but what's the reaction perhaps from, you know, the Gen Xers or the, the older people that you run into and you're like, no, I'm not having a drink? Well, it's funny because anytime I'm socializing with, you know, my parents or my family, and they'll all have alcohol, and I'm usually the one who sort of says, you know, I'm okay. And I remember my aunt, you know, recently was like, you're not having a glass of wine with dinner? <laughs> I almost had offended her. And I just sort of said, you know, I don't really want it. I don't really need it. And she, she, you know, let off. But I think at first she was shocked because she just assumed that that's something you do with a meal. And it's, you know, such a, it's such a part of the way we experience each other that at first it's kind of jarring when you say, hey, I'm not going to have any. Laura Hensley, this is fascinating. I really enjoy you being on. Thank you so much, and enjoy your long weekend. Is it going to be completely alcohol-free? You know, I will have a drink on special occasions, so if I feel like having one beer, I will, but that's, you know, kind of my limit, so maybe I'll have one. <laughs> All right, Laura, Laura Hensley, uh, part of a generation, whooping it up with mocktails. Thanks for having me. Always great to be uh, have you on. Thank you, Laura. Appreciate that. Bye.